And welcome back to another Ninja Nerd podcast. Today we're going to be talking about hypoparathyroidism. Welcome, Zach. How you feeling? I am so tired right now. It is not even funny. Get the coffee, man. I let's, know. Let's, let's get it going here, right? Let's let's do it, man. Hypoparathyroidism, nothing crazy. It's going to be a super quick one. I hope you guys really like this one. I think it's going to be a step back from like the monsters, behemoths that we usually do. Hey, it can't always be a monster behemoth, right? I know. We got to sometimes just sprinkle in a little bit of uh, some easiness in there. <laughs> really quick, we've gotten a few questions on really what the goal of our podcasts are. What we're doing is we're basically taking our YouTube library. We're picking videos at random and saying, what haven't we covered with a podcast? Our plan is at the end of everything is have a podcast episode for every YouTube video we have. Again, we're just really trying to offer you guys the full package here. So we really do hope you enjoy it. But hey, let's get a nice easy one here today on hypoparathyroidism. Sounds great. So when we talk about hypoparathyroidism, obviously break it down into the causes, the pathophys first. Um, I think the easiest way to think about this is, you know, when we look at this, is there a problem where the parathyroid gland isn't functioning or that it's not actually making uh, really any PTH, that parathyroid hormone. That's the cause of their hypoparathyroidism. And so you have to look at the parathyroid gland as the possible source of the problem. One of the easy ways is that do they not have a parathyroid gland? Did they get it removed because they had some type of like thyroidectomy or a parathyroidectomy or they had like extensive like radiation therapy to the neck and they just don't even have a functional thyroid gland anymore? The other one is that it maybe didn't form properly. Um, so during the embryological development, you have what's called the third and fourth pharyngeal pouches. They don't develop properly during embryology. And so they don't actually make a functional uh, thyroid gland. I'm sorry, parathyroid gland. But also on top of that, you'd also be looking to see if they have any like cardiac issues, particularly like maybe an underlying uh, you know, congenital heart disease, or if they had um, no particular thymus. So that's another thing with DiGeorge syndrome. The other thing is that maybe it wasn't removed or it wasn't formed. It could have been destroyed. So we obviously said that radiation therapy could be one particular reason. The other one is it could be autoimmune. So sometimes if you have like an autoimmune attack of the parathyroid gland, that could be one particular reason. And one of the diseases to think about for this is actually called autoimmune polyendocrine syndrome type one. And usually what you want to think about with these patients is that not only do they have autoimmune antibodies that attack their parathyroid gland, they also love to attack the adrenal gland. So they have adrenal failure. And on top of that, they also love to attack the skin and they may have the, these chronic skin infections uh, with candidiasis. So think about that. I think one of the big things is that it usually two really important causes here is that you either remove the th uh, parathyroid gland or you actually have this autoimmune attack. And so usually the removal of the thyroid gland, like having a, you know, I'm sorry, a, par a parathyroid gland, like a parathyroid me, that's going to be one of the most common causes of someone developing hypoparathyroidism. Whereas the second one is going to be autoimmune polyendocrine syndrome type one. The other particular reason if it's not removing the parathyroid, if it's not that it doesn't form, or if it's because we did we destroyed it, the other particular reason is to be infiltrated with a lot of different types of molecules or chemicals or tissue, and then impair its ability to be able to make parathyroid hormone. And diseases like this will be infiltrative diseases. So think about Wilson's disease, where there's lots of like copper accumulation within the parathyroid gland, or another disease called hemochromatosis, where they have lots of like iron deposition within that actual parathyroid gland. So those are the big causes to think about for these patients. Now that would cover if the parathyroid gland is the actual problem. What if it's not the parathyroid gland that's the problem? What if it's actually that the PTH production from the parathyroid is relatively normal or maybe even potentially a little bit high? All right. So 
what could be these particular issues where the PTH levels are normal, maybe even a little bit high? Um, one of the diseases is what's called pseudohypoparathyroidism type 1A. So this is an interesting disease. It's actually where the PTH receptors are the problem. So PTH is produced normally, maybe even a little bit higher than usual, but the receptor that is supposed to bind to and produce its effect is just not working properly. And this is because there's some type of like intracellular issue. Now there's a protein called the G stimulatory uh, protein. Generally, this is coupled with, um, you know, your G protein coupled receptors, and usually they'll activate the cyclic AMP, which will activate the protein kinases, etc. It's not going to be able to do that. So this G stimulatory protein isn't functional. So it isn't able to stimulate the cyclic AMP and trigger these target organs to be able to function. So in this situation, PTH won't exert its ability to be able to do what? Increase calcium levels. So in this situation, they'll have hypocalcemia. And then they won't be able to tell the kidney needs to be able to excrete phosphate into the urine. So there's going to be less phosphate in the urine and it's going to be higher in the bloodstream. So they'll have hypocalcemia, hyperphosphatemia. And so these are important things to be able to understand. On top of that, it would actually lead to the reduction in the activation of vitamin D. So this is an important condition to be able to think about in these patients. Um, usually for these patients, what you're trying to look for is, you know, there's usually an autosomal dominant nature to this disease. So you're looking for, you know, younger individuals who have some degree of obesity, intellectual disability, maybe a short stature, a really, really tiny shortened, like fourth or fifth digits are another important component here as well. The last one that I want you guys to think about that is a part of the pseudo hypoparathyroidism. It's not due to the actual parathyroid not being produced, you know, from the actual thyroid, uh, parathyroid gland. It's something else. And so there's another, uh, you know, situation, you know, the parathyroid gland inside of those, uh, parathyroid gland tissue, we have these things called chief cells and, and chief cells are, you know, naturally the cells that make parathyroid hormone. And they have these receptors on them called calcium sensitive receptors. So generally, whenever the calcium levels are high, right, that means that PTH is probably a little bit too high. It's causing the calcium levels to go up. That should actually tell the chief cells, hey, calcium levels are too high. Shut down the PTH production. Now, imagine for some particular reason that this calcium sensitive receptor is mutated in a particular way where it's more hyperactive than usual. So now... You can have like very, um, like little calcium in the bloodstream. It would be enough to be able to tell that actual calcium sensitive receptor, Hey, calcium levels are too high. Shut down the PTH production, but it's more exaggerated. And so the PTH levels are drastically re like reduced in this situation because we're not going to be able to, again, allow for these calcium sensitive receptors to be working properly. And so that's one of the big things that you may see in these patients. So again, that covers the big causes and the pathophys. And again, I think it's easiest to remember, is it a problem with the parathyroid gland where it's either not there because it's been removed or it didn't form? And that would be again in sequential order, surgical removal, DiGeorge syndrome. Did you destroy it because of radiation exposure, autoimmune polyendocrine syndrome type one? Or did you infiltrate it with copper and iron in the situations of Wilson's and hemochromatosis? And then lastly, did you mutate the receptors that PTH binds to? Or did you mutate the calcium sensitive receptor where it just does not actually make PTH properly? And that would be the big things for the causes in pathophys, Rob. All right. Beautifully done. That was awesome. Let's go ahead then and move into the clinical features. So really, what are the most common features that patients will present with 
when uh, they have hypoparathyroidism. Yeah. So I, I think the big thing to think about here is how does it affect, you know, what, what basically PTH, what does it do? PTH works to be able to work at the bones and basically help to activate the osteoclasts, right? To be able to increase calcium and phosphate liberation from the bone into the blood. Well, if you aren't able to do that, then you'll have less osteoclastic activity, less liberation of calcium and phosphate from the bone. So therefore, you'll have hypocalcemia and hypophosphatemia. The other thing is it actually works on the kidneys. Naturally, it helps to be able to lead to the activation of an enzyme called uh, 1-alpha-hydroxylase, which helps to be able to activate vitamin D. If you have less of that, you'll have less activated vitamin D and you won't absorb calcium across the gut as properly. So again, hypocalcemia will be one of those features. The other thing is that basically it also works at the kidneys, right, to be able to kind of work via what's called the uh, PTH. So PTH works at the distal convoluted tube to be able to help to reabsorb calcium and excrete phosphate. If you don't have that present, it's not going to be able to absorb the calcium and it's not going to be able to excrete the phosphate. So phosphate levels within the blood rise and calcium levels in the blood drop. Now, I think the biggest thing to think about here is that we obviously see a trend of hypocalcemia and hyperphosphatemia. What's the problem with having hypocalcemia and hyperphosphatemia? One of the things is that it can cause hyperexcitable neurons. And so these neurons can be super, super excitable because you have less calcium and phosphate to block the sodium channels on neurons. And so they just fill with all of this electrical activity and start causing increased action potentials. And this can obviously think about this. It can lead to seizures. It can lead to changes in the patient's mental status where they have more like irritability and anxiety. It can cause hyperreflexia. The interesting thing is it can cause like these paresthesias as well. And it can also cause tetany. And these are big things to think about. But I think also really think about those patients who can have like that Shavstek sign because uh, this could be one of the things to do the hyperexcitable neurons. You tap near the facial nerve and it can cause like the twitching of the face. Or you can have what's called um, a Trousseau syndrome, which is like a carpopedal spasm where you inflate the blood pressure cuff and it's enough to be able to kind of just kind of stimulate those nerves a little bit too much that it causes excessive like flexion um, of the actual wrist during the actual inflation of the blood pressure cuff. So those are things that you may be able to see. Um, other things that are possible is that you could have like lots of uh, potentially like calcium deposition maybe. Um, this can occur in the heart and lead to like potentially like our torsos to points. It can deposit into the actual lens of the eye and cause cataracts. There may even be some degree of like extra pyramidal symptoms due to de deposition in like the basal ganglia structures as well. But that would kind of be the big clinical features there, Rob. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Zach, for that beautiful explanation. <laughs> Let's move into diagnosis now. All right. So I think one of the big things is if you have a suspicion that a patient has hypoparathyroidism, obviously one of the things that you'll do is you'll obtain like a BMP. Maybe for whatever reason, you're obtaining some basic blood work and you get a BMP back and you maybe you add like a phosphorus onto that as well. And what you get back is you see that the patient has a very like low calcium. So they have hypocalcemia and they have hyperphosphatemia. And maybe they have some particular features of, you know, hyperexcitable neurons. So maybe they have an increased risk of seizures. They have that Chavstex. They have that uh, Trousseau syndrome from the carpal fetal spasm. They have uh, paresthesias like around the actual oral area. So perioral kind of paresthesias are another common feature. Seizures, irritability, anxiety, things of that nature. So you have some degree of suspicion. Once you kind of get that BMP back and you see that they have low calcium levels and maybe you throw a FOS at them and you see that they have a high phosphorus as well, that may kind of tend you to kind of say, okay, what's the particular reason for this? Is this a PTH problem? And so then what you can do is just throw off a PTH level, check their PTH levels. If their PTH levels are low, guess what? 
you know that the problem is likely because of their actual parathyroid gland. So it's one of those particular issues. And then look back through their history. What was the reason why? Was it because, oh, they got it removed. Oh, they have DiGeorge syndrome. Oh, they have autoimmune polyendocrine syndrome type 1A. Oh, it's because they have radiation exposure. You'll be able to kind of figure that out from their history in combination with their low PTH levels. So if they have low PTH, low calcium, high FOS, that definitely is more supportive of a primary picture. The other thing is that if you have the ability to, I would check like an alpha one hydroxylase level, definitely because they're having like these potentially like lower PTH levels or less activity of the PTH on the receptors, they may have a decreased alpha one hydroxylase levels. And then again, because they have these lower PTH levels, they're not going to be activating vitamin D. So they may have some lower vitamin D levels as well. So yeah, these would kind of be some big things that I would check for, Rob. But I think the easiest thing is you get your BMP, which is going to give you your calcium, maybe check an ionized calcium if you really want an accurate representation, get a phosphorus that was come back potentially concerning like low calcium, high phosphorus, make sure it's a primary problem, check the PTH if the PTH is low, you've secured the primary problem. And then from there, you kind of look through their history to determine what was the potential cause here. Was it a you know, surgical process? Was it radiation exposure? Was it an autoimmune polyendocrine syndrome type 1A? Was it DiGeorge? And I think those are pretty easy things to be able to do right off the get-go. All right, so we have come this far. We've gotten now to treatment. We've diagnosed hypoparathyroidism. Like I just said, how do we treat these patients? So I think the big thing is just, you know, treatment of the condition. So obviously the problem is hypocalcemia and maybe some low degree of vitamin D that's active. So giving them kind of the activated vitamin D and their supplementation of their daily diet, I think is important. Giving them calcium would also be huge. So I think giving them calcium, giving them vitamin D are the key things, because if you give them the active form of vitamin D, you're also going to help improve their calcium absorption. The other thing is that they have these high phosphate levels. Sometimes that can be somewhat of a problem as well, because those are going to excite your neurons. So if they have hyperphosphatemia and you want to try to get rid of that high levels of phosphate, you can actually help them to excrete it into their feces. And so you can give them something called cephalomeric chloride. So to treat the hypocalcemia, calcium. Also, vitamin D, because they're going to have low activated vitamin D. And then get rid of the excess phosphate, cephalomeric chloride. The other thing that you can do is you can consider recombinant PTH. You're just giving them PTH. So if they're not making PTH, um, they have a true hypoparathyroidism. Giving them PTH would actually improve their hypocalcemia and their hypocalcemia and hypophosphatemia. So that's another thing. One of the things I would say is that if the patient, you know, becomes like severely hypo, uh, hypocalcemic, again, you would really just want to amp up their calcium supplementation, amp up their vitamin D supplementation, and again, maybe even consider recombinant PTH for a while. So those would be the big things that I would consider for these patients. Not too bad, right? Pretty simple, just underlying causes, right? Yeah, I think really like when it comes down to it for, you know, hypoparathyroidism, it's really just trying to be able to remember the cause. If you can figure it out and again, think about it, is it the parathyroid gland problem? Go through those particular issues and figure out which one it could be. Was it a removal? Was it didn't form? Was it infiltrated? Or was it damage from autoimmune or radiation? Boom. If it's not that, it's likely a pseudohypoparathyroid. So then you think about, could it be a PTH receptor problem? Like in that pseudohypoparathyroidism type 1A? Or, and again, those patients, guess what? Their PTH levels would be normal to high. <laughs> that would be an obvious thing, right? So that would kind of lead you to that. Or could it be a calcium sensitive receptor issue? Um, and so that would be another particular issue. But once you've done that, I think the features is really sometimes they're not super obvious. Hypocalcemia and hyperphosphatemia won't like pop off the page and say, Oh, this is, this is definitely that, you know? So it's not super obvious, but think about those hyper excitable neurons. So seizures, irritability, anxiety, carpopetal spasm. So again, that Trousseau syndrome, the of sex sign. Those are key things that they may present in your vignettes, um, as well as like perioral paresthesias, 
Those are big things. And then from there, I would say it's very easy. You check this low calcium, high phosphate. If they have a high PTH, you determined, I'm sorry, if they have a normal to high PTH, you determine that it's likely a pseudo hypoparathyroidism. And if it's a very low PTH, you determine that it's a true hypoparathyroidism. And then again, treat the underlying problem, give them calcium, give them vitamin D, get rid of the phosphate. And if they need it, give them PTH. All right. Well, I would say you kept your promise. This is a pretty uh, quick, straight to the point video. Um, and it was still very, very helpful. Hey, thanks, man. I appreciate it. And guys, I hope that you guys like this podcast on hypoparathyroidism. Thank you guys so much for sticking around and being so awesome. As always, thank you. Love you. And until next time.